0: This is Scott Becker with Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Also, we'll also post on the Becker's Digital Health Podcast. We're thrilled today to be joined by Deanna Larson. And Deanna is president of, for as long as I can remember, Avera E-Care. And really, Deanna's really one of the great pioneers in telehealth. And I want to talk to her about sort of how Avera and their team got so out in front of telehealth and virtual healthcare, and and what they see happening in the next few years. Deanna, can you take a moment, tell us a little bit of the history of Avera eHealth and how you guys got so in front of this and and, and what you see in the next couple of years.
1: Sure, I'd love to do that, Scott. I I do want to mention to you that um, Avera is the pioneering spirit and helped us um, to really get telehealth going. And for the... You know, in, in, over the last couple of years, Avera has been in the process of working to spin out the telehealth network that we now call Avel, A V E L. And um, we are now owned, uh, fully owned by a private company and process all of the work that I'm going to talk about as that company, Avel. So just want to cool. make sure we have that record straight. So. <laughs>
0: no, thank you. But what a fascinating development. And thank you. Yeah. And another example of a health system building something, then selling it at some point. And so lots of interesting things on a lot of levels. Tell us what you're what you're seeing today with that and and how you and Avera got early into this.
1: Absolutely love to do that. So first of all, I'd like to just uh, talk about that early entry and Avera Health is a rural health system uh, situated in South Dakota and working in the rural geography around South Dakota and, and a couple of other states on the border. Um, I was working as a Senior Vice President of Quality at the time, Scott, and was really able to travel. You know, I would put on 50,000 miles a year just traveling to all the end users within Avera Health uh, organizations that included, you know, clinics um, in the health system as well as hospitals, critical access hospitals, nursing homes, et cetera. And what we would see, you know, you're talking uh, 15 years ago, really were a lot of isolation Um, Situations where we had great healthcare uh, providers, physicians, nurses, others really working in somewhat of an austere and and really um, isolated situation. Uh, Nonetheless, we had the same patients coming into their emergency departments seeking healthcare, coming into their hospitals. So they were often confined to working, you know, amongst themselves, a very small team. Nonetheless, all trained in the same kind of medicine or nursing that anybody is across the U.S., but becoming isolated in those kind of situations. So I would see them struggle to respond to um, things like a heart attack that maybe would only come in to their building because of the small populations a couple times a year. Um, where you know when they would come into a larger organization, the process, the synergy around how to quickly process that and move that individual along is is built in, if nonetheless, if nothing more than repetition because they see it so frequently. So these were great people, great providers willing to work in the communities that uh, they went back to work in, um, yet working with less uh, people, power, less Uh, equipment, less um, uh, time, really, because they're the generalists, and a generalist is the hardest job in the world because they have to know everything about everything. They're answering the same questions that cardiologists or pediatricians or nephrologists are answering, um, and and they're very isolated, where if you work in a larger organization, you just make those calls out to those specialists. So I got to see that, and the reality was these people just need access to the peers and colleagues they were trained to work with. So that that, um, uh, ideation of how do we just get this network big enough that they can not only connect the patients but connect the clinician to the clinician, working synergistically um, around patients virtually, uh, physician-to-physician, nurse-to-nurse, uh, team to team, uh, the patient's in the center, but you have, you know, the multiple perspectives of those specialists working around um, what I would call, now it's family medicine, but kind of that general practitioner who is working out there. And, you know, many times today, Scott, that could be a nurse practitioner who's working overnight in that hospital, uh, really needing the support of a boarded, maybe ED doc or boarded a hospitalist. So it all it's all evolved um, from that. But it's
0: really a fascinating perspective because it wasn't just about... It was about both supporting providers and staff, and and physicians and others in these communities, as well as supporting the patients. It was really it was really both it, it, it to make this work and what drove it. It's a fascinating perspective. So thank you. Let me let you continue.
1: Well, so it was really important too. Um, you you have enough history to remember back those early um, late nineties and early two thousand. A lot of um, Bad press came down around rural health care, you know, like you wouldn't do well if you were ever an individual there. And that was very hard on those clinicians. So um, just getting that same perspective you just described, Scott, how do we make sure we get them the support that any other clinician would have if they were working in an urban setting? So the the, the mantra kind of became, let's just bridge that gap. Um, giving them the resources they sh- they need um, in the rural setting. Now, sometimes that was the equipment to maybe some sort of specialty um, intubation tool to um, intubate an airway for ventilation, which is so everyone knows what that means today, but Um, you know, some of those tools just weren't there for them in some of those locations. So helping them access to that, training them on the utilization and getting them up on a video camera to help walk and support them through the actual procedure. So um, it's been fascinating to watch how comfortable those individuals become over time when they they get the competence uh, to do the procedure and the confidence that, wow, we're, we're doing everything we got trained to do and we're really making a difference in our community.
0: Thank you. And talk a little bit about where does telehealth and virtual health go over the next few years? I mean, obviously, you're now with a private company. It was always sort of a piece of Avera that was private, but not are truly the private company. And where does this go over the next few years? Do you look at local expansion, geographic expansion? Where do you go and where does telehealth and virtual health care go generally, I mean, meaning the company and virtual and telehealth?
1: So we continue, um, aval continues to be a B2B. Um, so what does that mean? It means whatever clinical service we provide, we want to partner with the local providers to augment. Um, that could be very large tertiary facilities where we augment critical care in a large critical care, you know, large site. There could be 20, 30 beds of critical care, but we're still augmenting those individuals in that hospital, so um, offloading some of the work for them. Um, I think what that really means is that there's a workforce issue now. I was describing a workforce issue, if you will, 20 some years ago in our small rural. Well, there's a workforce issue all over now. So I think the big focus has to be how do you use, advance um, the health delivery of healthcare? Um, how we look at other industries, how they've used technology such as telehealth as one of those tools to really change that environment. And for years, people have talked about, you know, banking and how we're all very much on a virtual space with our banking. How do we use these kinds of tools in the healthcare industry to augment the workforce? Um, You know, our our healthcare workers are so well-trained and highly trained. How do we make sure we're taking advantage of all of that training using technology to support uh, making providers available you know and as i've said providers to providers and what does that take scott um we're in 40 some states now with many different um different services part of the difficulty with that is is you know state to state interstate licensing credentialing at hospitals you know um medical staffs describing what they need to appoint that physician or nurse practitioner in their building um, you know, quite honestly, it's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, now, I also want to keep patients safe, making sure that physicians, nurses, others are licensed and appropriately educated. It's it's not that I highly appreciate that, but there must be some more streamlined processes to make this network of virtual care more available, um, you know, across the nation so that we can really utilize these high skill sets we do have. But it's a fascinating
0: perspective you have because you see two different distinct types of telehealth companies. Those that are and there's a couple of these in the behavioral health area, that are direct to patient, business to consumer. What you've said, which, which is different is, and there's many that are formed like this, that really your customer is another health system, another practice office, whatever it might be. And you're now in 40 states. But one other question for you is, Deanna, are you still, Located Is the primary location still in South Dakota or someplace else today?
1: Yeah, the the biggest hub is in South Dakota. We do have expansion of hubs in Michigan as well as Texas. And part of the dilemma is, um, you know, hiring the right workforce uh, to work in a hub location. So um, as everyone else has learned during COVID, we have actually gone remote, if you will, many individuals working from another state, another location as part of our clinical service offering. So we're in the balance with the rest of the world, how much of this hubs up, if you will. We have a large hub here in South Dakota, um, smaller hubs in the two locations I described. And really learning with the rest of the nation, how much of this can be remote. Um, we don't want to you know, get into that state of isolation that I described you know, 20 years ago. But I think with technology today, we've been able to bridge a lot of um, that situation so people aren't feeling as isolated. So I think it's um, a mix of the above, Scott, that we have to have some hubs where people can get together, um, do some of the consistent practice work so that we um, we really can be best best class, best high practice uh, organization. And yet, I do think we have to offer that opportunity to follow the workforce and make sure we can offer them the opportunity to work at home as well.
0: Thank you. Let me ask you another follow-up question. When you talk about hubs, who's in those hubs? Is it technology workers? Is it call centers? Is it providers? Who's, who's habitating those hubs?
1: Well, in Sioux Falls, it is the administrative support that it takes, like licensing, credentialing, um, you know, IT, et cetera, as you described. But we have a whole clinical hub, which is really a virtual hospital. Um, we do school nursing out of there. Our school nurses congregate here and are across many states. Um, as well as skilled nursing, we have the clinicians who provide skilled nursing services. So this is your <laughs> this is your place where, you know, command center that I have nurses, pharmacists, physicians, boarded ED docs, boarded critical care intensivists, uh, hospitalists, all hubbed up here like a uh, truly virtual health system. Um and then from there, you know, that's where the practice center is, if you will, where we create the practice standards and protocols. And then um, from this location, uh, that it goes out to the other remote locations.
0: What a fascinating perspective. One last question, just a quick answer. What's the biggest priority for this year, for 2022 for you folks? What's your biggest priority this year?
1: Yeah, um, be that augmentation for the workforce and make sure that we are providing high quality care out there where the workforce is really struggling.
0: What a great perspective. Deanna, it's been just a great pleasure to watch you over the course of your career uh, with Avera eCare. I remember when you first started doing this and leading it and organizing it, it was fascinating for me to watch. And now it's come full circle where Avera has now sold it or partnered with it to a private company, to uh, maybe a private equity fund, I don't know, but where you're now running it for them and it's got a new name. And tell us that new name again for our audience.
1: Sure, Avel eCare, A V E L. E-care. Yeah, it's been and, it's been very fun. Thanks so much for the opportunity to tell the story, Scott. As you can tell, I love it. So um, I'm not done yet. I don't know what's next, but I'm not done yet.
0: Well, you're still a kid, so you better not be done yet. Uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> Deanna, a great pleasure to visit with you again. I, I love getting to, get to visit with you. I love visiting people from the Avera system. Thank you so much. And I know you're no longer part of the Avera system, but still magnificent. Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Scott.